Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Turn back to the book of Acts where we read just a little bit ago in Acts chapter 7. And um, we're going to see here today in in God's Word, but also in uh, the ordinance of baptism that we'll participate in. We're seeing the gospel. We just sang it in that Anastasis song. That's the official title, I guess, which means resurrection. It's about resurrection. It means new life. And um, that's what we're going to see in portrayal there, Craig's new life in Jesus Christ and his eternal life. Um, it seems like over the past few weeks, as we went through um, the book of Acts so far, <laughs> that uh, like in a, in a lot of ways, it almost feels like a Perry Mason episode or a, a John Grisham novel. The church has been in, co- in the courtroom a lot <laughs> in these seven chapters, and our scripture passage this morning details the same thing. Um, this time, there's a dramatically different outcome than the previous times the disciples were arrested or imprisoned and then brought before the court. Uh, so far, I mean, there's been persecution, but it's been limited, restricted somewhat. And in Acts 7 and into the first few verses of chapter 8, we see the record of the intensification of the persecution of the church to the point of martyrdom. People are actually now being killed. Uh, it also expands from church leadership. So far, it's just been the apostles, the church leadership. Now, uh, we'll see in this passage, everyone's involved. Church members, all believers are. Uh, and you might, as you might perceive from the title of our sermon this morning, even though all of that's true, the spread of the gospel is not inhibited one little bit. Um, the gospel keeps going forward. The, the church is propelled through persecution to actually fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave them. Um, beginning in verses 51 to 53, uh, we see the wrap-up, kind of the end of the sermon, the end of the exhortation of Stephen. Um, verses 1 through 53, they're a, a message. And you might notice that we're skipping over the first 50 verses of this passage here in chapter 7. Please don't take that as an indication that these verses are unimportant. Uh, it's a sermon. And if you have time later this afternoon or this evening or this week, I encourage you to read the first 50 verses. Um, they contain the third sermon in the book of Acts. It's the longest sermon. Uh, Stephen's sermon or his exhortation in this courtroom defense of the Christian faith. Uh, here he recounts the history of God's people in the first 50 verses uh, from all the way back at the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus Christ. And I'll give you a kind of a synopsis. Uh, theologian John Wolverd, uh, he highlights the three main points of Stephen's, Stephen's sermon in the first 50 verses as, first of all, there is progress and there is change in God's program of salvation uh, toward his people. And then secondly, that God's blessings, they're not limited uh, to the land of Israel, uh, specifically not to the temple area. And then the third thing that Stephen brings out in the first 50 verses in this sermon is this. In the past, God's people have exhibited a consistent pattern of opposition to God's program and plan of salvation. 
as well as to the people that God sent to call them back in line with his program and plan of salvation. So, so basically in these first 50 verses of chapter 7, Stephen tries to enlighten his audience, which are the Jewish religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. He tries to teach them that, that Christianity is the natural fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. He's telling them that um, if they were to receive Christ as Savior, if these Jewish religious leaders would trust in Jesus as their Savior, uh, that does not mean that they have to divorce themselves from their ethnic Jewish heritage. Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah that was promised to them ever since Abraham. Uh, in Ephesians 4, 5 and 6, God has the Apostle Paul remind us this. There's one Lord, and there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And, and so Stephen uh, is, is aligning himself with that truth. He's loudly proclaiming in these first 50 verses that uh, Christianity is not some offshoot or divergent denomination coming out of Judaism. No, this, from Genesis to Revelation, this is the same singular faith in God. Uh, if anything, it's these religious leaders and the rest of the Jewish people who refused to receive Christ as Savior, who, who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they're the ones who, for all practical purposes, have created a new religion, a new faith. So that's the content of Stephen's sermon. I'm trying to give you like a Cliff Notes uh, version of verses 1 through 50. But an important part of any exhortation, any sermon, is always the invitation, the call to respond to whatever was being preached. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, beginning in verse 51. At this point in his exhortation, uh, Stephen ratchets up uh, his indictment of these religious leaders who have rejected Jesus Christ. In, in verse 51, chapter 7, verse 50, uh, 51 says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. So Stephen uses language that God has used throughout the Old Testament to describe um, these religious leaders as stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Now, that might be harsh. I think it is harsh. Um, and I was kind of joking around the first service with Daniel and Tommy because they've been to seminary more, most re more recently than I, than I or Bible college. Um, I, I've never, I don't think I ever had a homiletics class, you know, or how to preach class where they're like, make sure you call them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Um, but Stephen's just, honestly, he's quoting scripture here when he says that. God had called his people that. In Exodus 33, 5, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, in Deuteronomy 36, that's just three uh, places of many where he, he said, you're stiff-necked <laughs> because they were stiff-necked. <laughs> they so often refused to turn from their sin and turn to his offer of grace that he held out to them. They needed to be circumcised in heart and ears. Boy, they prided themselves on the physical sign and symbol of circumcision they had hearts. They had hearts that needed uh, to be transformed into being soft and tender and moldable by God. And again, Stephen reminds them in verse 52, they're just doing what their ancestors had done as far back as the historical record goes. 
It says in verse 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one of Jesus, of whom you have been now the betrayers and the murderers. Um, just like their fathers persecuted the prophets that God had sent to call them to repentance. Now these present Jewish religious leaders were persecuting Jesus, the one God sent. And they were uh, persecuting those who were trying to continue the work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. And finally, in verse 53, Stephen gives a particularly stinging final indictment. Um, they were given God's word, <laughs> and they loved it, and they prided themselves on it, but they hadn't kept it. That's what he says in, in verse 53. You who have received the law by the disposition of angels have not kept it. Let's look at his invitation. Um, there is really no recorded invitation like we might typically think of one because of how we're used to doing things here. After the message, there's a, you know, I call up Tommy. That's how church usually goes. Um, there's a time to respond to the word of God. That's an important thing. Uh, the altar's always open, but all of us should be responding wherever we are um, to the message that we've received through the Holy Spirit. And that's the problem here. Uh, we don't have an uh, invitation like we're used to, but the statement at the end of verse 51, it definitely serves as one. Uh, Stephen says, as your fathers did, so do ye. Well, what did they do right before that? You do always resist the Holy Spirit. That's the implied invitation from Stephen. Stop doing that. <laughs> Stop resisting the Holy Ghost and, and, and resisting God's word through whoever's speaking it. Stop being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Stop refusing God's grace and rejecting Jesus Christ. And so then the opposite, yield. <laughs> yield to God's Holy Spirit, his, his application of God's word in your life. Let him circumcise your hearts. Stephen says, let him change you. <laughs> Like he's changed me. And as we're going to learn later, Stephen's sermon invitation had continued in his action, his steadfast commitment to Jesus Christ, even at the threat of the loss of his life. Let's look at the conviction of the Sanhedrin here, beginning in verse uh, 54. There's a couple of responses. I want to really focus in on their first one. Uh, how did they respond when Stephen wrapped up his sermon here and gave this invitation? Well, verse 58 lets us know God did his work. God's word did its work. The beginning of verse 54 says that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. <laughs> and listen, that's simply a description of the work of God and the word of God bringing conviction to them. They were convicted of their sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting him to the point of crucifying him. Uh, that phrase, cut to the heart, we've seen it before in Acts a couple of times. Most recently in chapter 5, verse 33, they're before the same people here. Peter and the apostles arrested, brought before this ruling body. And it says that in response to their preaching, chapter 5, verse 33 says that they were cut to the heart and they took counsel to slay them. That phrase was first mentioned way back in Acts 2 um, after Peter's Pentecost sermon. Speaking to that large crowd. Uh, gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Peter preaches. He gives out the gospel. He gives an invitation. And Acts 2, 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's a key difference in that time. Um, they said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what must we do to be saved? 
So please pay attention because I don't know if there's a more important takeaway than what we're provided for at this point in this passage. Both groups of people had the same message preached to them. Both groups of people had the same experience. They were were cut to the heart. Two very different outcomes here, weren't there? Between Acts 2 and what we're seeing here in Acts 7. Uh, The people convicted of their sin and when they were told about the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ back at Pentecost, back in chapter 2, says they gladly received God's word. They repented. They were baptized. But now this time, these religious leaders, after hearing it multiple times, after being convicted, being cut to the heart multiple times, they continue in their rejection of Jesus. The first group submitted to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They yielded to the Holy Spirit's wielding of God's word in their life. Uh, They said yes to God's offer of grace for whosoever will repent and believe. But the second group, they they firmly gripped the proverbial pew in front of them. You know, um, they said, no, I'm not going to bow to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No, they they cried out, no, I I will not yield. I'm going to do it my way. And, And you know, we might look on them in disbelief or disdain, but every one of us here this morning needs to ask ourselves, how many times have I done that? How many times have I rejected God's offer to come to Jesus Christ for salvation? Or for us who have, how many times uh, have we who've trusted in Christ as Savior, how many times have we refused to bow when God's Holy Spirit brought some conviction of sin in our lives? How many times have we found ourselves cut to the heart, but we said, no, not yet. We said no to God's word. Or we said, no, you can't have that. <laughs> I'm giving you a lot, Jesus, but you can't have That's mine. That's mine. And, and that was their first response to this conviction. But it got way worse from there. We see that in the rest of verse 54. Um, it says they gnashed on him with their teeth. That's just a description of, uh, you know, the most extreme, <laughs> uncontrolled rage toward Stephen and toward the gospel message he shared. Now, Stephen didn't respond likewise. It says in verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, he looked up steadfastly into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Boy, Stephen gave us a Christ-like example or model to follow if we ever find ourselves in persecution of any level. Didn't he right there? Um, He didn't gnash back at them. He didn't get angry. Where did Stephen turn his eyes? He looked up steadfastly into heaven. He turned his eyes to Jesus Christ, fixed his eyes on his Savior. He obeyed Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Since you have been risen with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on on things above, not on earthly things. There's a couple of noteworthy things that we should uh, pay attention to in this verse. Way back uh, in verse 2, when Stephen started this sermon, uh, he said, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And now, after his sermon here in verse 55, it says, Stephen sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That, That little word, and, in that final phrase there of verse 55 He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. It's the word chi. It can also be translated even. And so we could read it that Stephen saw the glory of God, even Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And that makes perfect sense, wouldn't it? 
because Jesus Christ is the glory of God for us. Amen? The glory of God. That's the gospel, Romans 3.23. It's got to start there. All have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, meaning, um, we've fallen short of living how God has commanded us to. We've fallen short of living the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is described for us this way. And the word uh, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld God's glory. Um, the glory uh, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And a couple months back, we went through Hebrews together. Hebrews 1.3 describes Jesus this way. He's the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. Jesus Christ is the glory of God for us. And Stephen saw him. <laughs> These religious leaders didn't. They refused to. Instead, their response to the conviction brought by the Holy Spirit and God's word, it continues in verse 57. It says, Then they cried with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they ran upon him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. That's mature, isn't it? Can't you just see like a little kid? So often that's what we do when we do always resist the Holy Spirit. And uh, they rush towards Stephen. They take him out of the city and they murder him by stoning him to death. The Mishnah is a, a Jewish uh, religious instruction manual. Um, it exists today, but it was kind of written around that time. And uh, it describes, it details this horrible way of death. The accused would be pushed off a 10-meter platform by the main uh, person who brought accusation against him. And, and um, he would fall. If the fall didn't kill him, well, then one of the other, because you always needed two or three witnesses, one of the other accusers would drop a, a large stone on his head or on his chest. And if he still survived all of that, the rest of the council that convicted him would uh, pelt him with additional rocks until he died. It, it was customary for them, especially those uh, first ones that did those things, to remove their outer garments for this ex execution. And that's what's explained in verse 58 when we're introduced <laughs> to an individual who watched over these murderers closed. It was a man named Saul. And finally, let's look at the persecution of the saved, beginning in verse 59 of chapter 7. Um, the malevolence that the church has experienced, it, it continues. It's a new, it's an increased level of persecution. That's evident. This is the first person that died uh, for their faith. Jesus Christ died for his faith in Christ, or um, Stephen died for his faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 59 and 60, they give us additional details about his death, but, but also um, uh, his Continued testimony of Christ's likeness even at that moment. Um, would you read those with me? Verses 59 and 60. And they stoned Stephen and called upon God. And Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, lay not this sin against their charge. Do you hear echoes of Jesus Christ here on the cross? Because he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's such faith in Stephen's life here at the very end of his life, such grace in the worst kind of persecution. Now, how could Stephen do this? I think the answer is found in the first part of verse 55. And this has been Stephen's testimony for three chapters now. Stephen was consistently full of the Holy Ghost. He was full of the Holy Spirit of Christ. 
And that's been his record. Yes, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was elected as a deacon back in Acts 6, 5. That's what he was described like then. He was described the same way, Acts 6, 8, when he did wonders and miracles among the people. It was because he was full of the Holy Ghost. In Acts 6, 9, and 10, uh, he had previously here, before the execution, he had been brought to these people that would convict him and said he was full of the Holy Spirit. But he is also full of the Holy Spirit just as much in these final moments of his life when he acts so Christ-like. Following Jesus in his final words, following Jesus literally by laying down his life. In verse 60 says, and he fell asleep. And that's New Testament verbiage for his body being laid to rest because the moment that he uttered, uttered these, these words, he was ushered into eternity, his spirit, that moment with Jesus Christ forever. Uh, now, as chapter 8 begins, um, we, we learn that Saul, Saul was not just a, a coat holder there. The very first verse says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. That phrase indicates a more active role than someone who just watched. I, I don't think he hurled the stone, but there's a verses at the end of Acts where Paul talks about casting votes, and I think here his vote for Stephen was no. And Saul was just getting started, <laughs> and the malevolence of persecution to the church continuing. Um, this is an intense season of the persecution, a very young church. I know we've been looking at this for a couple months now. This is like a week or two since the birth of the church till this happening. It's a, a great persecution is what it's called in verse 1. And it scattered them, it says, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Only the apostles stayed back in Jerusalem to lead the church from there and lead those few who remained. Verse 2 tells us that devout men gave Stephen's body a proper burial and this new uptick in persecution, it was so great that verse 3 describes it as, as Paul making havoc out of the church. And that word in Greek, it means to tear apart like an animal would attack. And Saul spared no house, it says. With zeal, with devotion, he arrested both men and women. He had them in prison simply because they trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So is it over? The church and its mission, is it finished? With this new threat, I mean, we had imprisonment and things like that. Now, now, now they want to kill us. Will this bring the Great Commission to a screeching halt? Would you look at verse 4? It says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. That's awesome. Verse 4 is all about the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about victory in Jesus like we sing. Let me go to God's word in Romans 8, 35 to 37. And I know many of you know it well. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. So tribulation or distress? What about persecution? And famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? What's the answer? No. <laughs> In all things, we are more than what? Conquerors. <laughs> we're more than conquerors. Why? Because we're so tough? No, through him who loved us. Verse 4 gives us such great hope in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, those who were scattered abroad went everywhere <laughs> preaching the word. This is an account of how God's grace works in our lives. How God works all things, even persecution and a martyr and being uh, driven from your home at the threat of imprisonment or death. He works all things for the good and for his glory of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you hear an echo from the end of Genesis and Joseph's life? where he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. 
They're good. And that's what happened here. The persecution of the saved, that simply accelerated their participation in the Great Commission. I mean, the mission continues. Back in Acts 5.28, this council, the Sanhedrin, they were frustrated because it says that these Jesus followers had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, with their gospel. And they had. But up to this point, they had not progressed in Jesus' command to take it here, but also there and everywhere. You remember that, right? Acts 1a, the Great Commission given to us by Jesus Christ. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then into Samaria, then to the uttermost part of the world. Hadn't happened yet. What about now? Acts 1.8. They were scattered uh, abroad. And where? Judea, Samaria. <laughs> Look at verse 4. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere. <laughs> they're, they're doing it now. That's exactly what's happening. We find that word scattered in verse 1 and verse 4. Um, There's two Greek words that are translated that way. Uh, One has the idea of making something completely disappear. That's not the one used here. Here, scattered is diaspiro, meaning to disperse seed into the ground all over the place. And isn't that what now they are finally doing? Why? Because of persecution, because of pain in their lives. Through the pain of persecution, God helped them to do what he had commanded them to do in a great commission. In Matthew 28, 18, and 20, you know that great commission passage. Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. And here in Acts 8, 4, they were scattered abroad and went everywhere. They're now going. <laughs> They're preaching the word. You know, it's been a middle since we've been in, been a minute since we've been in the middle of the text here. But what's your response to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ um, when he uses God's word in your life. Maybe it's when you're having your daily time in his word. Um, Maybe it's at church. And you find yourself cut to the heart. What do you do? Do you submit? Do you yield and say yes to his work and to his word? Or do you refuse and reject? Do you stop your ears and you cry out, no, Jesus, I won't give you access to that part of my life that you want to change. I don't know if that's ever happened or how many times that might have happened in your life, but if it has, would you make the last time the last time? Uh, when God's Holy Spirit uses God's word to, to cut you and I to the heart, let him in. <laughs> I mean, he's only doing it to heal you. He's only doing it to transform you and whatever. Don't let your testimony be that of these religious leaders who do always resist the Holy Spirit. And if you find yourself and you're like, I'm not being persecuted. I'm not being told I can't share the gospel or this or that. I I don't know what persecution you're going through. Whether Satan wields that or he wields cancer. Whether Satan wields persecution for your faith outright like this or whether he wields financial difficulties or some relationship that's breaking down. Whatever he's doing, will you do what Stephen did? (laughs) Like right now, will you fix your eyes on heaven? Focus your gaze on Jesus Christ. Set your mind and heart on him. Won't you commit this morning to trust that he's going to do what he always does, what he did right here, what he's promised to do, even in the worst, persecution. Will you do what Stephen did here? And you'll say, I believe you're worthy of my trust, God, and and use me, Lord, however you want to use me. I'm yours. Use me to do what you've asked me to do, to make the name of Jesus treasured here, there, 
and everywhere. As Tommy comes and leads us in a time to respond to God's word, however the Holy Spirit has um, moved you to respond, I just ask that you'd obey. <laughs>